and welcome back to what is qualitative anyway we are in chapter nine of the qualitative uh, research methods book um, and it's the social historical research and oral t traditions which I actually enjoy this chapter because as I mentioned in the previous podcast I love history um, and more so in a, so a social aspect uh, which the beginning of the chapter mentioned so we'll get into it um, so the beginning of the chapter is kind of defining what they are referring to when they say social history, because history can be chronological. It can be uh, placed in like classification, as the chapter mentions, kind of like a timeline, an order of events. Uh, but that's not what social historical research is about. It's more of an interpretive process, understanding what was happening then and where we're at now and the different, um, the evolution between that, how the different maybe cultures and society all played a part in it. Um, so it's more of understanding the social context versus just was it what it is in that moment as far as, you know, the timeline. But, uh, it goes on to mention it's more, I like how it said it's a narrative account uh, at its best. It is flowing, revealing, vibrant, and alive. Um, and it mentions that initially um, historical research wasn't really considered as a uh, method, you know, for a methodology for understanding, gaining knowledge, uh, which it mentioned um, positivism more that you know there's a scientific understanding to everything, everything can be validated. And then it's hopefully transitioning and transitioned into understanding that history, you can gain knowledge from it. You can understand the different uh, mechanisms that were at work in there um, socially that contributed to where we're at now. Um, it goes on to mention you can't fully, you can, one cannot fully evaluate or appreciate advances made in knowledge, policy, science, or technology without some understanding of the circumstances within these develop, uh, within which these developments occurred. So I do, I like how it mentions that, uh, interpreting, using social historical research, you're interpreting the data more, what's the deeper meaning with it, the latent data that's within historical research. Uh, so when I was reading this first, I guess, introduction part of the chapter, I thought of Michel Foucault. Um, he discusses discourse and knowledge, um, which he termed archaeology of knowledge, the knowledge that you can gain from studying history, but not necessarily history as a timeline, but rather the discourse within history that led to people's understanding of certain terms or led to even certain cultural values. History can teach you so much about the evolution of society, just how we became to uh, interpret, you know, what is good to, and bad, you know, morals, things like that. Um, so I, I definitely thought of that. And so I kind of made me happy to kind of correlate those two. But I also thought of social construction, uh, constructionists, theory or approach because you know it mentions to just be mindful of what you're looking at you have to understand the context of maybe different words or situations what may have happened years ago is different from what would happen now words that were used then 
may have a different meaning from what they are now. So you have to understand society within that moment to understand the social construction that happened, um, that uh, the evolution within it, how it all transpired and occurred and got to where we are at now. So it's a process that you're looking at um, of society. And I just, I loved reading that in the beginning. And then it mentions the differences between life histories and social histories. So life histories, I consider more of just a biography of oneself, uh, a recount of a story from your past, not to confuse that with social history, but it still fits within the context, I think is what he was trying to say of social history, because it's still a person, it's still part of society. You can still use life histories to understand life in that historical context to interpret it, you know, into a larger societal understanding of, you know, the social history that you're looking at. Um, The chapter goes on to what are sources of data for historical researchers? I'll touch on that too much because I think at this point where we're at in education, we are pretty hopefully familiar with this, but as far as primary sources, secondary sources, and tertiary sources, um, you know, your primary source is a written account from first person, um, secondary source is like second second person is how I think of it, and tertiary sources is third person. That's just kind of how I view it. Here it goes on to, you know, uh, outlining the procedures of how you're, you know, this, uh, how you're choosing the sources of historical data. So you'll look at, you know, identify an idea or topic, you know, identify your question, kind of like your hypothesis. Uh, what are you looking at? What are you studying? Um, background information, gather your sources is kind of how I interpret it. Refine the research idea and question. So after you've looked at your sources, your research, that's where your question is going to develop and become more concrete, uh, more focused. Determine the historical methods uh, will determine that historical methods will be the data collection process. Identify and locate primary and secondary data sources. So um, same thing, evaluate the authenticity and accuracy of source materials. Make sure you're getting the sources from a valid place. Um, I think my initial English professor always mentioned, you know, things that men end in like .gov or .edu or .org can be more of a reliable source than like just using Wikipedia. Um, and then, you know, go from there, code and interpret your materials maybe find reoccurring themes, things like that, and analyze the data and develop a narrative exposition of the findings. So that's kind of pretty self-explanatory. And then it moves on to external criticism. I think over time, having been in studying social sciences, I've understood, you know, it is always important to question everything. There's nothing wrong with questioning things. Um, questioning yourself, questioning your sources. So it kind of is reiterating that, you know, who wrote the source, understanding whether it's a primary or a secondary source. Um, What is the authenticity, authority, bias, interest, or intelligibility of the source? You know, is this coming if it's someone talking about health and um, things that doctors do, you want to make sure that this person is Uh, somehow involved in that field, uh, you know, have some type of certification in that field, degree, whatever it may be, 
And then what was the view or event of the phenomenon when the document was written? So once again, understanding what you're looking at within that context, within that time period, what was the phenomenon? What was the overarching thing that was happening in that moment? Um, it's going to, of course, differ from have a different understanding from where we are at now. So you have to understand things within their context. And then what or who was the intended audience? Know who you're speaking to who or who they were speaking to at the time. You, uh, that's always important, knowing your audience. So you can use that as well in your research. Uh, what sources were privileged or ignored in the narrative? Uh, do other sources from the period refer to the source in any way? What evidence is offered or compiled? Uh, and in what historical context was the document itself written. So it kind of just reiterates all that. And then internal crit criticism, you are you understanding your text is kind of how I interpreted that. Are you understanding what's being said, what the author is trying to say, their motive, um, what they're referring to, um, what what are the, uh, what references are included as the language invoke works that would be known to readers of the time? Is it understood within that context, I guess, again? Are the author's statements accurate? Was the sentiment of the author similar or contrary to one of the time period? Looking at those differences is what's also important, I think, is what they're trying to say in the chapter. Understanding the differences um, that may appear. You know, one person may be saying something, but it may be a different thing on, you know, maybe different on another spectrum, you know, two different maybe ideologies or goals going on there. Um, so just looking at those different differences, I hope that makes sense. But and so we can move on to what are oral histories on this part of the chapter. I think it's very important uh, part of the chapter, um, just because I think oral histories, they're just so much more important than what. Uh, then what credit is given to that form of data? Uh, it's, uh, I remember Professor Casso mentioning in class about sitting down with maybe one of your family members and talking about their life. And I did that with my previous professor in my Chicana Feminisms course. And we actually, we were asked to do an oral history and I did it with my mom and I just, I learned so much that I I didn't know before within um, her growing up in the 60s and 70s here in San Antonio. So it's very important, not only for historical accounts, uh, like the chapter mentions oral history as a reality, reality check regarding um, people that are oppressed, you know, uh, maybe in the moment nothing really can happen, you can't do much as a researcher then, but recording it and offering it later so it's not forgotten, uh, so maybe something can be done later, whatever the case may be. It's important for those individuals and even for us, the researcher or the family member listening to the stories, understanding the lives of your family, of the people around you, just it's just very important. Uh, it, it gives a deeper meaning to a lot of things in life when you study other people's lives, not, not really even study, but understand um, and just listen to different uh, people's stories. I think we can learn so much from that. I mean, there's just so much you can learn from 
hearing these different stories from people, but I won't go on too much with that because I can go on all day. But when I was reading about this uh, regarding the different stories that people took, um, I just, I kind of thought of intersectional theory just because, like it's mentioned here, the emergence of critical African history as a challenge to social, political, and intellectual influences of colonialism and imperialism has, there, has therefore drawn heavily from the oral histories and oral traditions of the continent. So looking at the different ways that people have struggled in different parts of the world and how they experience things differently from, say, how I experienced it. There's just so much that intersects there uh, that people can learn from and understand that the struggles that you have differ from other people. So it's not about judging, but rather understanding, learning, listening, and um, just uh, gaining that knowledge from it. I just love that whole concept. But um, I mean, from here, I guess we can just move on. There's obviously benefits and non-benefits to everything. Part um, as far as how it works, I liked how it mentioned uh, triangulating, you know, the different records, the different uh, artifacts. When you think back to unobtrusive uh, measures, the putting all that together and just kind of constructing that whole whatever time period you're looking at, understanding that better, and then you know why it fails. There could be bias in it. Um, that's always a factor I think in any type of research that you're doing and just not being able to access certain parts uh, whatever time period you're looking at not there may not be data for that time maybe to uh, connect whatever oral or historical um, data that you have maybe nothing that you have to connect it to uh, as far as facts and evidence just you know to, for it to be more concrete so yeah but I really did enjoy this chapter Thanks for listening.